This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for Resolve Dash Masterclass. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or subdivised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. We've got a real masterclass for you today, guys, with none other than Ronnie Israelov. But before we get started, our esteemed chief compliance officer is going to say a few words about why you shouldn't take anything we say today seriously. <laughs> Surprise. Uh, <laughs> yes, as always, please consult a financial professional. You should not get your investment advice at four o'clock in the afternoon on YouTube. With that, I think we can set the stage for ha- having a wide ranging informational purposes only discussion. Not advice. All right. To kick us off, Ronnie, super excited to have you on. We've been trying to get this together for several months, actually. You've had some papers you were working on and then some other, I think, company building distractions (laughs) that have caused us to push this off. But we're finally getting it on the books. So this is great. Before we get going, maybe kick off with your background, which I think is super interesting and definitely want to dig into some of your prior experiences and what you're doing now at Endeavor. Yeah, thanks. I'm excited to be here. I think we're going to have a really fun discussion. So I am the Chief Investment Officer and President of Endeavor. I thought I'd start just by introducing Endeavor to everyone who's, who's tuning in today. So we are a wealth optimization firm who serves affluent and high net worth individuals and families. And we specialize in creating and managing custom lifestyle protected growth portfolios, which are designed to optimize the balance of providing cash flow security while targeting portfolio growth. Now, in terms of my own background, I joined Endeavor three years ago. So just before COVID actually, February, 2020. And prior to Endeavor, I spent about 11 years at AQR Capital Management, large quant asset manager. Who? Yeah. Have you heard of them? AQR (laughs) out of Greenwich, Connecticut. And I worked on a wide range of projects and activities and strategies while I was at AQR. So I joined in 2008. I had been at Lehman Brothers for a little over a year before joining. And I was fortunate in terms of my timing. I left Lehman and joined AQR September 
2008, the week before Lehman collapsed. So I was very happy to find my way to AQR. Nice pass, Ronnie. I know, I, I got <laughs> lucky. And I started, when I started at AQR, I joined the global asset allocation team and I was overseeing equity country selection strategies in the macro space, systematic, and worked on a number of projects related to that on the factor side, on the portfolio construction side, on the risk modeling side. So I was working on rebuilding and recalibrating the risk models that were applied to equity country indices that then expanded into the entire asset allocation universe. Spent some time, as I said, on factors. And most of the factors that would be in that type of portfolio are long-term in nature, but we found some shorter-term factors. And I ended up launching and overseeing a short-term StatArb fund, which was in the macro space. So futures and, and some ETFs when appropriate. And then an opportunity arose to oversee the options and vault scheme. So I spent about the last half of my time at AQR building, managing and overseeing option strategies, primarily in the harvesting of volatility risk premium arena. And the last year at AQR, while I was doing that, I also had the opportunity to oversee the portfolio implementation research team. So it was really thinking a lot about portfolio construction for stock selection strategies. We weren't building factors or the like, but essentially we were consuming factors, consuming a risk model, consuming a trading cost model, and then optimizing individual funds. You're really thinking about the research around how to best optimize individual funds using those inputs. So that, that was my time at AQR. Before AQR, as I said, I was at Lehman Brothers for about a year. I was in a sell-side role, so quant equity strategies, and we were really focused on stock selection strategies, long only, long short, relaxed constraint. It was a team that was led by Matthew Rothman, who had spent some time before Lehman Brothers at a number of quant equity funds. So even though it was a sell-side team, he really managed it as though it were a buy-side team. It was a nice intro into into quant joining that team and i had joined that team from from carnegie mellon i just finished my phd in finance so that is my background i had a great opportunity to work on pretty broad range of strategies and portfolios and, and research which i think has given me the perspective to to do what i do now at, at endeavor carnegie mellon i thought aqr only hired out of university of chicago by 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 policy is what happened. <laughs> I know somehow I snuck in. I think it's because <laughs> I came from Lehman. I had a path through through another organization. I gotcha. One of the things I've always wondered because I spent many years earlier in the decade soaking up all of the papers that that you and Toby and Auntie and uh, and Cliff and Ralph and all your whole team at AQR published. I was just wondering to what extent the published research at AQR informs the actual strategies that are implemented on the ground there. Like you've got, there's a ton of strategies on trend, our papers on trend strategies or value, momentum, value, momentum everywhere, carry, transaction op optimizations. Like there's every conceivable angle on markets you could think of. And I think it's a, I'm not the only one that sort of wonders how far does AQR's implementation team wander from the published papers in implementing those strategies? I think a lot of the published papers give you a taste, a taste for the underlying investment philosophy or theme. But the implementation beyond that can be pretty complicated. As an example, I had 
published a paper called Which Index Options Should You Sell? And as I said, I was overseeing the, the options effort, which was largely volatility risk premium harvesting in nature. And it gave a description of returns and risk across the option surface, which, which might be informative, but that's really just a starting point, right? That only takes you one or two steps down the process of building a portfolio. And I think if you look at most of the papers, they, they indicate a philosophy, a way of thinking about things. I think they offer some guidance, but, uh, but the devil's in the detail. And you can have 50 people reading the same paper, constructing pretty different portfolios and strategies. Maybe they're capturing the same theme, but, but the implementation can be pretty challenging. And I have always really been a fan of implementation. It's interesting to me that when you're in research and when people are joining an organization, a research organization out of school, I think pretty much everybody wants to work on factor research. That is, that is where everybody's heart is. Um, and that's interesting and important, if you're, especially if you're a hedge fund and your goal is to provide alpha, factors underlie that. But the extent to which you can effectively capture that alpha or the damage you might do to the alpha in a portfolio construction process is really guided by the efforts made in terms of portfolio construction. So for some reason, it's a little less sexy, but I think it can be as or more impactful than the other areas of research. So I don't think too many of AQR's papers are actually written on portfolio construction itself. Maybe there are a couple of, a couple of counterexamples where some guidance is given, but I think that's an, a very important aspect of research. We were talking about this. We're just talking about how difficult it is. There's, we knew a trader, still know a trader that always said, look, there's every, there's many people that have models that are significantly better than mine, but I happen to be significantly better of putting that money in my pocket. I just, my, the execution in prop trading is everything. This is a prop trader and the modeling, like an interesting initial point of discovery, but what it takes to actually make alpha out of it is a totally different thing. And it is what consumes most of our research as well. So it's not surprising. And I think it's an important key to success here. A few people see that, especially on the Twitter sphere and the blogs. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think once you start going down the rabbit hole, I think it's no less intellectually stimulating than the alpha, than the alpha research. It's a, different, it's a different part of the research process, but it is intellectually stimulating. It's challenging. There are many degrees of freedom, many paths you can go down. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about how we think about portfolio construction and whatnot at Endeavor. But a lot of the work that we're doing actually is about portfolio construction and how do you make it scale across to yeah. hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of portfolios and whatnot. So I think it's a very important and interesting. Uh, yeah, and another process. side story was speaking to somebody from Bridgewater and they were discussing how they had come up with a new model that they'd never seen before. And uh, he'd come back with some interesting results, high sharp ratio independently. And it took months and months of working with them. And finally, they came back to him after months when the portfolio construction team tested it out and said, listen, yeah, this is good. You've added, let's say the independent sharp was one. You've added an extra two basis points in sharp. Implementing a thing. There's overlap with a lot of stuff we do. It hasn't hurt our portfolio construction and our sharp. In fact, you've added two basis points you're in. Just an interesting like eye opening. Uh-huh. That's what really imagine. 150 billion is a lot of is a lot of dollars yeah, in exactly. your pocket. But for smaller shops, it may not be as may not be as interesting. Yeah, I think that's actually that's funny because there's so much truth to that. If you are 
working. As I said, I started in in the equity index country selection models, but I, I worked in different parts of the organization as well. And when you have a very well-developed, mature model that has however many factors it has in it, and somebody's working on an independent factor and they think they found something, they have found something. It's statistically significant. It shows it's efficacious. It's maybe efficacious across different markets. So you have out-of-sample evidence, like it, it meets all the criteria that you would look for in a factor. And then you start to try to incorporate it into the model and see how much impact it has. I think it's always less than people expect until they've done this a few times. And that can be a little bit disappointing. But to your point, two basis points is two basis points. And on in large portfolios, that that is meaningful. The flip side of that is also models. Sorry, just the yeah, flip yeah. side of that is models that when you test them, initially you get a result, then you put transaction costs through and it's a negative sharp. And a lot of times you abandon it. Right. But all of a sudden, if you think about it from a portfolio construction perspective, what if we add it to a model that is going to be those trades that made after after transaction costs and a lower sharp after netting out with your existing portfolio? It actually adds is accretive. Right. So a lot of things are thrown in the trash bin after transaction costs independently that might be accretive as a group. Right. So another kind of important aspect of portfolio construction when thinking about models. Yeah, I think I think it's always hard to add factors that have a different decay profile together within a model. And that's actually something that that was one of my earlier projects. And I collaborated with with another researcher at AQR, Michael Katz, on this. But the basic idea was that you can build a long term model, you can build a short term model and then use the short term model to adjust how you trade the the overall model. And And then we looked at that in different contexts. And what you found is you could improve the expected performance of the model and actually provide exposure to that short-term signal and, and without hurting the long-term signal in the process, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, DFA gets a lot of mileage out of that idea. Where we don't believe in momentum, but we will use momentum to affect when we trade our value portfolios, right? So we won't sell a value holding that falls out of the top decile by value if it has positive momentum, we'll wait till it has negative momentum and then we'll sell it and vice versa, right? We won't add it until it has positive momentum. So you're not actually trading the momentum factor so much as you're allowing it to creep into your your the way you transact on your slower moving models. And I think there's merit in that. Um, I think that's a good dovetail. So let me see if I can remember custom lifestyle specific portfolios, right? Endeavor. Yeah, lifestyle protected growth. That's the tagline that we have right now that are highly cut. In order to do, in order to provide that lifestyle protection, they have to be custom because everybody has different and unique goals in the portfolios that they want to construct. So I think that is what distinguishes what we do from any others. I think our innovation is the idea that, that for most people who have their own unique objectives, in order to best satisfy those objectives, it does require a custom portfolio and the methods for analyzing and constructing those portfolios. Happy to talk about a number of aspects related to that. I've always wondered about the, the sort of mean, I'm going to say the mean variance utility of that, or let me actually frame it a different way. Just how varied are people's utility functions? I think I think quite varied. We spent a lot of time as we were building the optimiz what we call our optimization engine, trying to think about how to character 
how to characterize different people's utility functions. And I think it's a very complex problem. Even if you simplify it to a traditional mean variance utility function, right? You want positive return, right? That, that provides positive utility. You don't like variance, so variance provides negative utility. Trying to characterize, even if you believe in that, that kind of functional form, of utility, trying to ascertain an individual's person, an individual's risk aversion can be very difficult. But I would argue that mean variance is incomplete for, for individuals because variance is not the only risk consideration that people have to contend with. Certainly, people are concerned about variance. They're concerned about the risk to their capital, right? They bring $2 million to the table and they want growth, but they don't want to lose too much of the $2 million in, in the process or risk losing too much of that. But oftentimes the wealth serves a purpose. It's not just about trying to take the $2 million and turn it into $4 million. But at some point people are going to retire and they're going to need their portfolio to provide cash flows in their retirement. And they have cash flow goals. And, you know, Each person's cash flow goals might be unique. And one of the risks that people worry about is whether they're going to be able to satisfy those cash flow goals. And the drawdowns that you might bear between now and when you retire, that's a risk, but that is a very different risk than the risk to satisfying your retirement cash flow goals. And I think people's utility functions incorporate both of those. And sometimes in order to best serve one objective, you have to take risk in the other. If you want to improve your, your odds of meeting your cash flow goals, you might need to take more drought on risk or vice versa. And I think everybody's preference is likely to be unique. Some people are going to be more concerned about risk to capital. Others are going to be more concerned about meeting their cash flow goals. And I think it's very hard to specify an optimization, a universal optimization function that, that meets everybody's objectives. So our thought in this is that information is very helpful. If we can inform, if we can, if we can have an analysis tool, a financial planning tool that is able to understand, ingest individual clients or prospects' goals, and then as accurate as we know how, analyze different portfolios' potential and helping to satisfy those goals and characterize the, the return possibilities and the risk across two dimensions, risk to capital and risk to, to satisfying those cash flow goals and provide that information to, to clients, to users with, with the help of an advisor, then they are able to help, they're able to select a portfolio that is most aligned with their own utility function, which I think they would have a hard time maybe specifying their utility function, but they may be better able to understand which portfolios are better aligned with what their individual goals are. So what variables do you use in order to define that, right? You got return expectations, you got risk drawdown. What else are you guys pulling in order to come up with ideal portfolios? Yeah, so we ended up narrowing it down to three hero metrics. We've considered so many in the process, but you don't want to overwhelm. Information is helpful, but you don't want to overwhelm people, right? So we narrowed it down to three. One being terminal wealth. If somebody is looking at a 30-year forecast or a 30-year analysis, what is the median end wealth? And for that, we're taking into account taxes, fees, transactions costs. We're trying to be as, as precise as possible. So we look at terminal wealth. 
we look at typical maximum or peak to trough drawdowns. We run a number of scenarios and in each scenario, we look at a peak to trough drawdown and look across those so that we can characterize the risk to capital. And then the last one, and this took some work, we developed our own measure of that characterizes the risk to satisfying one's cash flow goals. We call it a plan security score, but essentially it is a it is a statistic that is intended to convey the risk that an individual has to their future cash flow goals, taking into account two things, the probability of not meeting those goals and the magnitude of the shortfall. At some point, we were communicating those separately. You have a a 70% chance of meeting your cash flow goals. And when you fail, here's how much you failed. When, as we were talking to people, that just seemed like too much information. So essentially, we took both of those pieces of information and collapsed them into a single measure of planned security. So when we look at a number of different portfolios, we show additional information to that. But I think the three key criteria that we suggest people focus on is, is the median end wealth, which is a characterization of growth, and peak to trough drawdown, which is a characterization of risk to capital, and then this planned security score, which is a characterization of the risk that they have in terms of meeting their cash flow goals. Ronnie, just a terminal wealth would be not terminal as in when you retire, when you stop, when you start digging out, but rather what you want to leave as a legacy. Yeah, at the end of the at the end of the forecast. So right now our forecasting engine allows people to forecast anywhere from 10 years to 50 years out. So you can decide how how long you want to consider, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, whatever that might be, and then we simulate a thousand paths across across time and then calculate statistics along the way and then the terminal wealth in this case would be at the end of the at the end of the forecast period. And I imagine you, you're taking you... into account sorry Mike, just quickly. Okay. I imagine you're taking into account inflation and lifespan in those calculations. So we take into account inflation. Inflation is something where when somebody enters their plan and there's a lot of customization in the plan. So somebody can specify cash flows in any number of ways and you could have multiple cash flows that are specified. We allow for inflation adjusting any of those cash flows, and we rely on on the BLS data for you know it can be just a general inflation adjustment at CPI, or it can be a healthcare expense, which would have its own inflation rate, or travel, which would have its own inflation rate. Those are all provided for convenience. Anybody can adjust that if they want. So we're providing the numbers that reflect very long term historical averages in terms of inflation. So that allows someone to kind of inflation adjust. A cash flow stream, in terms of in terms of lifespan. So we have, at this point, we have built an internal mortality model. We have not yet integrated that into the forecasting engine, but it is something that we are planning to incorporate. So as it stands right now, it is a fixed forecast term. Like I said, measured in however many decades are specified. But at some point, what we expect is that somebody can give us information about their age and gender. Our internal mortality model actually adjusts for uh, for affluence or wealth. Selection bias of the affluent. Yeah, it turns out twenty three and me in there and get their genetic background. There was a research paper. I can't remember who wrote. There was a recently released research paper a few years ago that actually showed mortality curves by by income levels. So if we have access to that information and we can provide a more accurate mortality lifespan estimate based off of it, we might as well do. So as I said, we've developed that internally. We have not yet incorporated that 
into the portfolio lab or the forecasting environment. Where that'll really start to play a role is when we enhance our lab to include multi-generational forecast, where you're not just forecasting what happens over your life, but then you can have the wealth that you have at death go into to the next generation. Children and their grandchildren, how do you maintain a family wealth for multi-generations? And our intent is to enable a number of trusts within the lab. So you can imagine like a GRAT, which has a certain purpose in terms of estate planning, a SLAT, a spousal lifetime annuity trust, and so on and so forth. We have a pretty ambitious agenda in terms of continuing to enhance the lab so that we can help people provide more insights to people in terms of their own financial plans. And one thing I should just say is... We operate under a freemium model. So the basic lab experience, like anybody who's listening today, they can go on our website, request access, we'll give them a login, and you can play with this and see see how it behaves. Well, stop being such a tease, Ronnie. Show your show the wait, wait, hold on. I gotta go back to I want I had a question. There was three basic premises you were forecasting, right? Which it was what was number three? Drawdown terminal wealth and and a probability score, which is a combination of probability of meeting cash flows, and if you do miss, the magnitude of the miss. And that last score is calibrated to be a measure of zero to 100. So 100 basically means you're good to go. We will never report 100 because perfection. I think that's a hard thing to to say. But our score goes from zero to 99. So a 90, you can think about it as roughly you're going to meet 90% of your goals on average, penalizing large misses in terms of the measure. And so the that what's the math behind that? Is it the variance of the model, the distant the time frame to the end? What are the kind of the what's going on in that? That's what I was curious about. Sure. So it's very much like a root mean squared error type of type of function. So basically we look at each desired cash flow over the whatever it might be, 360 months, 600 months, and look at the squared shortfall average that, square root it, a couple of adjustments so that it'll scale from zero to 100. But think about it like a root mean squared error, where if you got 90% of your desired cash flows over the whole simulation in a level way, your score would be 90. But if you got half the time 100% and a half the time 80%, your score would be less than 90 because that is worse because yeah. you have some bigger shortfalls. So it contemplates the variance around the mean that, and then it, it incorporates that into the scoring system. Exactly. Is it a bootstrap or is it a Monte Carlo? Are you imposing distribution? And if so, are you imposing more complex distributions or like, how is that? It's a Monte Carlo. We had contemplated the bootstrap, but we felt like we couldn't actually achieve the richness of what we needed in a bootstrap framework. But we were very careful that the Monte Carlo distributions look like they might have come from a bootstrap. As an example, our, when we look at equities, it's a geometric grounding motion, but with heteroscedasticity involved, with heteroscedasticity. And that model, the stochastic volatility model, was very careful, very carefully calibrated. And if you look at the return distribution that comes out of that, it has roughly the right kurtosis and skewness in terms of characterizing the distribution of equity returns. We also look at U.S. markets versus global markets. We're capturing an appropriate correlation structure internationally, but we have correlation in the heteroscedasticity process. So if volatility is increasing in the U.S., it's reasonable that it's increasing in developed markets as well. We're characterizing that. On the bond side, 
And I think this is a real innovation in terms of what we're doing relative to what you would normally see in these types of simulations. But we're not simulating bond returns. We are simulating yield curves because it was really important. And we haven't spoken yet about the liability-driven investing. That's part of what we do. But for us to appropriately capture the properties of the LDI-related portfolios, it was important that we were really accurately simulating bond prices. So we are actually simulating a three-factor yield curve that models level, slope, and curvature with appropriate mean reversion on the slope and the curvature, appropriate correlation of those three factors to equities. There's heteroscedasticity and the yield curve that is correlated to the hetero- to the vault process and the equities, capturing what we've seen historically. If you look at the bond returns that come out of this, and we start the simulation with kind of real bonds that exist, and then we move to hypothetical bonds that would be issued in the future, because this is a future simulation. So those hypothetical bonds are priced off of the yield curve. And if you look at the properties of those hypothetical bonds, they're quite realistic relative to history. And let me just speak about that. So if you look at historical bond returns, that the the volatility is related to the duration of bond, right? Longer duration bonds tend to be more volatile. Longer duration bonds tend to have a higher average return. But the sharp ratio tends to decline in duration. And AQR has a paper on this where they just they relate it to the leverage effect, your leverage reversion, that because of leverage reversion, you would expect to see a higher sharp ratio in lower maturity bonds. Yeah. And demand for longer duration instruments from insurance companies and the like yeah. can also push down prices. So I think I think there is a lot of reason to believe that those historical properties are real and should persist. We have calibrated our yield curve, our stochastic yield curve model in a way that it actually does capture those properties. So when we look at the simulated bond returns we see in the Monte Carlo engine, the correlation matrix across bonds by maturity is closely matching the historical correlation. You know, The return vol volatility and sharp ratios are realistic. And when I say that returns are realistic, I say that in comparison to historical returns, adjusting for the fact that yields have been declining for a long Mm -hmm. period of time. Mm -hmm. So it's not realistic under the assumption that yields will decline in the future the way they had in the past. But if you assume that we will not see declining yields in the next few decades, as we have historically, the returns are realistic. So in that case, I think that they're, I think they're conservative. And that is, that was really important in terms of how we simulate, because when we build portfolios that are intended to protect future cash flows and they're intended to mimic holding zero coupon bonds, it is important that you're modeling the yield curve dynamics appropriately. And because our portfolios include that while including bonds that might be held for other purposes, for growth purposes, it's important that we're capturing the correlation of those to each other appropriately. So a lot of effort went into this. And on the equity side, one thing that we enable is personalized indexing and multi-factor portfolios. So when you when you build an overall portfolio, you can choose to be passive or you can have a value tilt or momentum tilt or low volatility tilt. And the properties of those are different from each other, right? A low volatility portfolio does not have the same properties as a passive US equity portfolio. So we have modeled all of that as well into our simulation. So when you go through an analysis and you're selecting your factors and looking at different portfolios, everything is adjusted for those selections so that we can try to appropriately assess 
the performance of the portfolio. And one other thing I'd say about the way the simulations operate is, I think in, under the traditional Monte Carlo model that you'd see used in other wealth management firms, if you ask, some people will ask, like, how often do you update your assumptions? And it might be every six months or every year. And those assumptions are just mean volatility and so on and so forth. And if you look at them, if you look at the numbers, sometimes they're pretty liberal, maybe somewhat optimistic. But in our framework, because we're simulating yield curves, and if we're going to simulate a yield curve, you need to have a starting yield curve. We're actually recalibrating the yield curve every day. And because we have heteroscedastic volatility, we need a, a starting point for that as well. So we're calculating the initial conditions every single day. Our assumptions for all intents and purposes are kind of auto-updating daily based off of the current market conditions. That's just significant. Yeah, I was just going to say that significant improvement on the bond side and the predictability that can come with that is more known and reliable. No, that's huge. What about, huge what about on, on the, the bond yeah, side? I completely huge, agree. It's a major differentiator. It's actually, I think we should pause and just recognize that is yeah. a massive advancement and kudos yeah. to you. Yep. I'm like, yeah, I'm <laughs> that, really, is, that's tremendous. that is yeah. spectacular. I've just Those, asked as, for access, by the way. Yeah, as you say, right? So you, you hear about these, oh, I've got a, uh, we've had a large correction in COVID, so I'm going to update my future returns and my financial planning models. And you'll hear that type of <clears throat> talk. And it's, yeah, I'm not sure that's, I guess that's what you have to do. But in, in that type of responsive environment where you're simulating the yield curve, wow, that's, so you're just people in the plan, people coming to the plan, people who have been, through the plan for a number of years are getting that real-time updating. Yeah, so you can build a plan and you can build a plan, look at it, and then in the future, you can relook at relook at things. And our intent right now, it's not there yet, but this is coming soon, is that once somebody builds a plan and is invested, that we will, with some regular frequency, monthly or whatever the case may be, essentially re-automatically rerun an analysis so we can give them kind of a check-in because just because today your plan security score might be 90 if if you see positive performance you should expect to see that improve if you see negative performance you should see that go down and if it goes down maybe you want to adjust that's it you know, it's the iterative it. process of a, pl- a financial planner that's super important here because it's not just how did your portfolio do but it's also what are your income needs right it could be lower it could be higher and i imagine those are inputs i know now that those are inputs that you can modify to see where you're at, right? So if you happen to get unlucky and you're in the 10th percentile positive outcome, then you have some levers to pull, but you need to up, you need to check up on that every year. You can't just assume that you're just gonna keep going. You took a bad path in the many Monte Carlos. And I think that's one of the toughest things to explore with clients is understanding what 80% success means today versus what it may mean in a year. I agree. I agree. And I think under the normal model, I think other wealth management firms and advisors, they will all have access to some sort of Monte Carlo engine. I would personally put ours up against any. But another kind of interesting element is that we actually make ours accessible. As I said, it's freemium. Like you can request access and play with it. Where in the traditional in the traditional formula, if you will, you have to meet with an advisor, you tell them about yourself and your plan, they go back, do some work and then set up a meeting maybe a few weeks later. So I think an important part of wealth optimization, I said we're a wealth optimization firm, part of that is convenience, that you have answers as soon as you want them. And then if you need help in terms of help interpreting and making decisions off of that, then we have advisors available to, to assist with that. I think you had a question about how we simulate the equity side. Well, yeah, we yeah well, it's actually there. the same for bonds and equities, because obviously the most important 
determinant of bond returns is going to be what happens to the level, right, over time. And it, I guess that just is exacerbated on the equity side. So yeah, just wondering how you set basic core to capital market expectations. Yeah. So let's start with bonds. So when you look at bonds, it's easier to, to characterize the distribution or kind of the time series properties of slope and curvature because those tend to be mean reverting, right? A slope is, I know we're inverted right now. The expectation is that's going to mean revert to a certain level. And the same is true for curvature. And if you have enough of a history, you can really ascertain those properties and capture them. Level is a whole different beast because we saw level trend down for some period of time. If you want to project that forward, I don't want to project that forward. That doesn't sound right. Would we assume that they mean revert to the average level over the past hundred years. I think that's a hard assumption to make too. The decision we made, I think it's a sensible one. I've always asked people what they think because I think this is the hardest one to make a call on. But the decision that we have made essentially is to assume that the forward level, the forward expected level or average level is what it is today. We've essentially just characterized the distribution such that it's not expected to trend up or down and that there wouldn't be any like positive or negative return coming from changes in the level. So is, there, is there a connection there? Is there a connection there to the inflation assumption that you would make? Because they are somewhat related. You're making an inflation assumption somewhere on the other side of the cash flows. Yeah. So right now we do not, and we've thought about this. I'm not there yet. I don't know if we're going to go in this direction. So we don't, we don't simulate inflation as a random variable. We could simulate inflation and then have that connected to level and have that connected to equity returns as well. The inflation adjustment that we have is really just a fixed adjustment to somebody's plan. So if somebody says, you know what, I want $10,000 a month and inflation adjusts that by 3% a year, or whatever, then you know it'll start at ten thousand dollars a month. A year later, ten thousand three hundred, and it'll just grow from there. So essentially, everything is the plan is developed in nominal terms, and the simulations occur nominal, and we allow someone to take a view or inflation adjust their plan accordingly. I guess you could just fit a maximum likelihood on the real rates, right, and the real yield curve, and the real the real slope and curvature and the real levels, and then simulate real rates and then tack on inflation for to get a nominal expectation. But yeah, I mean, it's all hard. On the equity side, yeah, just generally, how are you setting the long-term expected mean? Yeah. So on the equity side, what we have right now, and I think it works fine, but I think we're also going to revisit this and see if there's maybe a version 2.0 on how we do equities. But on the equity side right now, essentially what we have is equity returns are equal to the risk-free rate plus a assumed sharp ratio, which is around like 0.35 or something in that neighborhood times volatility where the volatility is stochastic, where the long-term volatility is somewhere between 16 and 17%, which is pretty consistent with historical assumptions. The property of that is that in in a higher risk-free rate environment, it assumes a higher equity return. And that's something that we're researching to look at and see, is that kind of the best property or are there some adjustments that we could make to make that more realistic? But essentially, the simulations assume a sharp ratio, which is consistent with, if you look at like the last hundred years of data, and, and then simulate around that using the, uh, the time series risk-free rate that comes out of the simulation. Is that a, a global stocks? Is that U.S. stocks? How did you approach that 
which stocks were used to? Yeah. So what we did is we, so we simulate essentially like the, so we simulate a single process, if you will. And then we use like a mean variant, an inverse mean variance optimization to convert, let's say a, a total global portfolio to the individual regions where what we're simulating is US equity market, developed equity market, emerging market. So essentially we have a covariance matrix for these three regions. And then we do an inverse mean variance optimization to get an appropriate expected return for each of the three countries. Is that a Black Litterman implied return? So is that it's something yeah. like, yeah, something like that, essentially. And then we add noise around that so that we're getting the right covariance matrix, right? So you have some, some idiosyncratic return by country. So essentially, that's the approach. So what we really specify is a global sharp ratio, not like individual sharp ratios for each region. Use this invari- inverse mean variance to convert that to the regional sharp ratios and then simulate from there. And essentially, after we do that, we have simulated returns for the US market. And then we use that to build simulated returns for each of the potential factor combinations that are under consideration. For each factor, type of factor portfolio, we have an assumed beta, we have an assumed alpha, we have an assumed tracking error. So we can essentially take excess of cash, risk-free returns for, for US equities, and then use that as a starting point to get the returns for each of the factors that are being considered. Now, are you using the uh, some sort of backpropagation to allow the results of the Monte Carlo to inform a, a portfolio optimization? Like the, what is the optimal portfolio in order to maximize that Pareto frontier of objectives? Like I, I don't want to go below a certain maximum drawdown. I, I want a certain score reflecting probability of meeting my cash flow needs and magnitude of loss below my expect meeting my cash flow needs and then t- targeted terminal wealth like how are you linking those two things together yeah so that's a great question so first i would say and i think i alluded to this earlier so we believe that portfolio should be built around a financial plan and not the other way around the norm i think in the industry right now is if you're a client of a traditional advisor you're going to go through some sort of risk questionnaire right and you'll answer a battery of questions and you'll get scored And most people are going to be scored in the middle, no surprise. And then if you're scored in the middle, voila, you're going to be recommended a 60-40 portfolio, right? And after you determine the portfolio, then you build a plan and then they tell you something about how that portfolio behaves on the plan. We think that's backwards. Like We think you should start with a plan, tell us about yourself, and then maybe this is the right time to take a little detour and talk a little bit about the cash flow protection that we're doing because that comes immediately out of the plan. So if somebody tells us they want the $10,000 inflation adjusted for for 20 years, one component of a portfolio is is a custom bond ladder that is constructed to duration match those cash flows and immunize against changes in, in yield curve. And this is very, you know, similar to um, liability-driven investing programs that are done by insurance companies and pension funds who have who face a similar problem, essentially. And the idea there is, if you tell us your cash flows, that is very useful information. We can use that information to actually try to build a portfolio that will improve your plan security score, rather than just taking different portfolios and asking how what is the what is the plan security score they're able to provide. 
we can actually use that information to literally build a portfolio designed to improve the plan security score by reducing the risk of, of missing those cash flows. So we have that information. We can build these custom bond ladders. That took a little bit of innovation as well, because if you're a pension or an insurance company, you don't have to worry about taxes. Everything is tax exempt. So the immunization problem yeah, was, was a little see. easier. It's not so easy for us because our clients are taxable. We have had to develop an immunization algorithm that's taking into consideration their tax profile. And when someone enters our lab, one of the first pieces of information they give us is their tax profile so that we can use that information. We take their cash flow goals, we take their tax profile, we use that to build an immunizing bond ladder. And that is a strategy that can make up the overall portfolio. So when we construct different portfolios that are under consideration for our client, the it's a combinatorial problem. We have different levels of protection. So you can choose to protect 10%, 20, 50, 75, 100% of your future cash flows. And of course, that'll consume some of your initial investment. So that'll be allocated to that custom bond ladder. And of course, that's something that has to be managed over time. It's not a you buy X bonds and you just hold them until maturity. If you want to maintain the duration matching over time, that's something that has to be rebalanced and controlled. So that occurs in the forecast engine. And then we're considering the tax implications of those trades. That also, of course, occurs in our actual live portfolios that we manage. But that is a sub-strategy in the overall portfolio. And then we have a collection of growth strategies that have different risk levels associated with them. We have an aggressive growth strategy, which mirrors risk parity and has some leverage that is protected with some options. But and we can talk more about that in a little bit. But we have aggressive growth strategies. We have conservative growth strategies because not everybody has an aggressive risk profile. And essentially, we look at a wide combination of growth strategies with different um, LDI portfolios, lifestyle protection portfolios. And then that gives us a frontier of portfolio options that someone has. Now, not all of the portfolios we look at would be on the efficient frontier. Some are dominated, right? If we look at our three measures that we think are important, end wealth, peak to trough drawdown, plan security score, some of those portfolios are going to score worse on all of those measures. And we find those, we label those as suboptimal, but other portfolios score better. And essentially, you get a frontier. There's no portfolio generally that scores the best on all measures. So you're always going to end up with a trade-off. Do I care more about end wealth? Do I care more about P2 trough drawdown? Do I care more about plan security score? But essentially, there's going to be some set of the portfolios that are investigated that are on an efficient frontier. And then those are presented, and we allow somebody to tell us a little bit about their own preference. So do they care more about growth? Do they care more about plan security? Do they care more about wealth preservation? And based off of that, we can make a recommendation, which we do, but we also show the other options so that they can look at the properties of those and make a selection. So this is where I think what we do is really differentiated because portfolio construction and planning are an integrated process. It's all part of the same software and lab experience. It's not you pick a portfolio in one place and then analyze it and ask if it's any good in another place. It's all part of an integrated process. And I think our ability to assess how the portfolios behave is enhanced by the fact that we know how we're constructing portfolios, right? It's not taking a Monte Carlo simulation 
tool that's created by a third party and trying to find a way to describe what we're doing within the parameters that they have. We know how we rebalance equities versus bonds, and we the way we rebalance them is cognizant to turnover so that we're not overtrading the portfolio and overrealizing capital gains. So we do that, and we know we do that. So our simulation engine behaves in a way that's consistent with how the portfolios are actually managed. And for that reason, I think they give, they give better estimates. There's, there's the expression, like, not every model is wrong, but some models are useful. But I think, you know, I think, I think that's where we're at. No model's perfect, but we've tried to make this model as useful as it can be. I notice on, on Twitter, I'm not super active on Twitter. I know you guys are. But when, when some people are talking about Monte Carlo engines, there is an incredible amount of skepticism out there. A lot of people view even any discussion of a Monte Carlo engine as a red flag even, or take them with a grain of salt. And I think skepticism is always warranted. I would use the information that you get from our lab or any any mm-hmm. engine as some amount of guidance, but, but you want to consider other things. But I think if you look at the universe of engines that exist, they are pretty basic in in nature, simplistic assumptions that aren't updated that frequently. Our intent was to develop an engine that could be taken more seriously. Well, mission accomplished. I'll tell you a funny story. Because in another life, all three of us were advisors. And I remember back in 2007, I think, Mike, you'll remember this, we were at a wealth firm and we had come up with our own simulation engine. We had a bunch, some were Monte Carlo slash bootstrap based. Others were based on Olevsky's work, optimization without simulation with the inverse gamma distribution. And it took advantage of the stochastic nature of both the return process and the mortality process. And we didn't rely on that to build out a full plan, a full estate plan. We had some clients who wanted a full retirement plan slash estate plan. And we had, a, I think, a fairly competent uh, retirement estate planner dedicated to that at, at the company. And he had a fairly comprehensive Monte Carlo term, a tool that he was able to use to produce reports like this. It was nowhere near as sophisticated as the one that you're describing. But to your point about some models are useful, it was more useful than the alternative, which was linear assumption, linear, linear growth assumption, which is what many firms still produce for clients today. And we started seeing him produce examples of these kind of 40-page pro formas of expected wealth and expected income and adjusted for inflation out 30 years. So no right. stochastic mortality at all, forecasting out 30 years. And we were like, you have at your disposal the ability to make this probabilistic, make it a little bit more realistic. Why don't you do that? He said, I used to do that. But to to an advisor, they all pushed back and said, no, I don't want those. I want the linear versions because they give the client much better, more optimistic results. And I'm out competing with other advisors from the major banks that are using linear assumptions and therefore giving clients much more optimistic results. They're out there telling clients you can take out five, six percent a year. More, more optimistic projections. Projections. More optimistic also, projections. So you mentioned this early and I wanted to circle back to this too, because now we're in a competitive environment and three out of four are using linear assumptions. You're the fourth one that comes in with a very thoughtful approach. 
but you're you're not going to get the business because it tells them they have to save more or they can they can't spend as much or their terminal wealth is not as much but i also remember the big we can talk about that as being the major driver but another major driver was the fact that a 54 page report was bounded it had a beautiful design in the front it looked like work was done. It was a heavy lift. On expensive and, and leaf with a gold spiral binding. Spiral, yeah, yeah. Signed off by the CIO, whatever. Yeah. And we were providing a single page report that needed to be iterated every year on. Every year you need to update your assumptions. That right. wasn't, that's just not gonna oh, get the business. Ronnie's coming for these people, boys. <laughs> that's right. We sincerely wish you luck. Like obviously this is the way to do it. I just, I share this as a, it's frustrating because many potential clients don't recognize the value of this. And they see, you're telling, my, you're telling me my spending rate is, is three and a half, four percent 4% at an 80, 80% chance of success. And this guy's giving me a 45 page pro forma that says I can spend 5% a year for 30 years with 100% success. So why would I go with you? And you hope you don't have to, yeah, those are harder questions to ask. And that's unfortunate because that's a funny, it is a funny way for someone to compare, compare advisors. I think, I think what we were hoping aside from providing hopefully better analysis and more accurate insights is the convenience of being able to get it quickly. The idea that you can get on a call, a zoom with someone, you can do it yourself. If you want the help of an advisor, you get on a zoom, you work on it in real time, you get answers in real time and are they allowed to set later. their own return expectations? We don't offer that. Yeah, no, good, yeah, good. Yeah, good. <laughs> so those are set by us. Yeah, so you can go on, so you can do the Zoom and in real time, adjust the plan, look at the portfolios, answer questions. And you know, an hour later, for all intents and purposes, you've designed a custom optimized portfolio that could then be implemented rather than having to describe a plan, wait two weeks or a month to get this binder, as you said, and then if you need adjustments, then, you know, you wait another few weeks to get another binder. We just think the delight and efficiency of this is... I think, Ron, for I think what it's, it's worth, the story that we told was, it feels like a lifetime ago, technology, the technology both from what you're developing on the forecasting side, but also on the ETFs that are available and mutual funds that are available to create more optimal portfolios. It's a different world. I think you're there's, right. there's more acceptance today of using an advisor via Zoom that'll walk you through the reasons. And actually, it is logging in, rerun my assumptions, get used to it, and then hopefully move forward with a thoughtful advisor. A massive difference than when we were looking at all this stuff. Well, and and also, I think the there's a, the clients want it when they want it. They don't want mm -hmm. it on the schedule. Hey, it's January 2024. We're ready. Like, we're going to do your assumption. And he's, I'm skiing in Aspen. When I'm worried about it will be in July when I'm sitting on my deck on the 24th and I'm going to call you and I want the discussion then. They want it when they want it is I guess yeah. my, that's been my experience with lots of years of dealing with this process is the client wants it when they want it, not when 18 people will drop in to try and give you a 40 page report. And we've gotten used to getting that in every other aspect of yes. our life. It just yeah. hasn't for some reason yet made it. Uh, Correct. It's the Amazonification of the world. So we want these things when we care about them. And it doesn't make sense in the technological evolution of the world and financial planning that this should be any different. But really, I guess that's what you're doing. You're bringing that to the, to the forefront for people to utilize. Yeah. And we are very much a fintech firm. It's, this is investing meets a technologist to make this happen. And I should say, 
simulating these portfolios is computationally taxing. So if you have a basic geometric Brownian motion or even a bootstrap, those can operate pretty quickly and you can get answers basically instantly. If you're actually modeling the transactions cost of individual trades and and including those costs, transactions and trades and the taxes and everything that results. And we hadn't talked about this, but some of our strategies includes futures contracts. We're also simulating the futures contract prices. And yeah, exactly. And then you have some 60, 40 tax treatment on the futures for tax treatment on other stuff. If you're capturing all of that information and trying to do it accurately, requires a lot of computation. And we actually, uh, whenever somebody does an optimization and we look at 30 or 40 potential portfolios as part of that process, in order to get the results back, we launch thousands of servers in the cloud for that one optimization and they're running and then we're able to give results back in about 30 seconds. So we're not talking about one or two seconds on a MacBook Pro. It's taking 30, 20, 30 seconds of thousands of servers time um, to answer these questions. So so that's what I wanted to get clarity on. When you are talking about your portfolios, you're not, you haven't created six of them and you answer the closest one you get to, you get that one. You're literally, one of the things we were discussing is direct indexing, custom indexing, custom equity portfolios, personalized indexing. That's what you actually are legitimately, here's your benchmark. This is your personal unique portfolio based on all these factors. And it's going to be like no other likely. Yeah. So on the simulation side, we will simulate, let's say it's a momentum portfolio. We will simulate that as like a momentum portfolio index and not simulate thousands of stocks. But when you go to implement it, and you specify it, there is a lot of control. I think this is also, there's so much surface area to what we do. I think you could take individual pieces of our product and that could be an entire company. Mm -hmm. Then we have a lot of those. On the equity side, so we do personalized indexing and just to bring everybody in the same up to speed on, on, you can imagine you can buy an ETF or you can implement direct indexing and direct indexing is essentially replicating the ETF, but with individual holdings, right? So if it's an S&P 500 direct index, somebody will go and buy appropriately weighted 500 stocks within a portfolio. And then you have custom indexing. And the idea behind custom indexing is you can customize that. So you can say, you know what, I want not S&P 500, but maybe S&P 500 with some ESG restriction or with some value tilt. And then a custom index will be created. And then you do the same thing. Like you have the index, it has a weight vector associated with that, that changes over time. And then, and then you buy a basket of stocks that are connected to that, connected to that index. And the traditional implementation of this is you might have RIAs or whoever's constructing a custom index and the advisor will construct an index that they, that they believe in, that they believe reflects the preferences of their set of clientele. And maybe they'll create several of them. So they'll have like five or 10 options. So they might have five or 10 custom indices. And then, and then they make those available to their clients. But anybody who selects the same custom index gets the same portfolio, essentially. What we have done instead is, and we're calling it personalized indexing, but basically it's bottom-up portfolio construction for every single client. So we're not running one portfolio optimization engine, and then doing a bunch of trades and and dividing them up, divvying them up across all of the clients who selected that portfolio. We allow every individual account to select the parameters of that portfolio. And then it's a bottom-up portfolio construction for that client. So that allows us to provide a lot of degrees of freedom. We try to keep it, we try to provide degrees of freedom, but make it palatable. It's something that individuals can, can consume. 
But what we allow for is individual stock restrictions. You know, if you don't want a certain meme stock or whatever, you can say, okay, don't make this part of the portfolio. You can select from a small set of factors. You can have value, momentum, quality, low volatility, which would be like betting against beta or our version of that. And then something that is a tilt towards size so that it tilts towards small caps. And then we use that information. You can turn on tax loss harvesting if it's in a taxable account. And then we use all that information to build a custom portfolio. And then, and this is really pretty cool, but we also allow for socially responsible investing. So you can go in and, and select certain categories. I don't want gun manufacturers or whatever. And then essentially you get a custom portfolio built off of that selection of criteria. That's individual stocks. And how do yeah, we approach the global way. side of that? It sounds like it's individual securities because we're saying, I don't want gun manufacturing, whatever. But then we've got, European stocks, emerging stocks, are we going directly to those exchanges to harness those? Or Yeah, so great question. So right now, our direct inde- or our personalized indexing is just within the U.S. So outside of the U.S., we're using cheap ETFs, like very yeah. low fee ETFs for developed and emerging market. We allow people to select. Our recommendation is generally global diversification. It's a degree of freedom. So you can select whether you want global diversification or not within the platform. If you select global diversification, you're going to get the, diver- the developed market ETF and the emerging market ETF if you coupled with a personalized index portfolio. If you want a US-only portfolio, then you're just getting the, the US stocks based off of the selection criteria. Do you, is it So then it's largely market cap then, or do you use some of the ETFs that might harness the different factors someone might want from the emerging markets or vol or something like that in those markets? Would that factor into it? Or is that sort of a preference that you could make if you wanted to, but you go with market cap? We've kept those passive for now, but it's something we've talked about. I think we're going to wait and see on whether we allow additional choices in the non-US market. Too much, too much of a proper implementation of factors <laughs> to just give it away, right? Yeah. It's just so it, funny, right? The labels all seem, they're all value or they're all momentum and you look under the hood and it's very... Yeah. And then you have the rebalancing. You wouldn't want to rebalance that every six months or every once every six months or once every year. And some of those are pretty infrequent. Given all of that, at least for now, we're keeping that, we're keeping that passive. The other and thing so, that I would so say... Can I just want to... So in, in reality, when we talk about tax loss harvesting, you're doing it on a per individual level. You're not tax loss harvesting with an exchange traded fund that where everybody may or may not benefit from it, depending on when they bought it throughout the year. You're optimizing every year on that personalized level. Exactly. And I think there is actually a tremendous benefit to owning individual stocks if you want to if you want to tax loss harvest. So we released a paper not too many months ago on this exactly, which is a horse race of tax loss harvesting individual stocks versus the ETF. And I think once you sit down and think about it, it becomes obvious that yeah, the opportunity set is yeah so much larger when you're tax loss harvesting individual stocks because you can have an index that's up 10% while maybe 30% of the names are down within the index and present opportunities. And the differences are actually pretty stark, which is something along the lines of the average loss harvested when you do this in individual stocks is better than like the 95th percentile of outcomes if you do it at the index level. It's like over time, the differences are- Yeah, the, glanu- the granularity has to be there. Like when you actually, anyway, the conclusion to me is a bit obvious, but not obvious. It's obvious when you say it, 
because right. I have 500 constituents to choose from, or I have the S&P. Exactly. And another question that we had, and this was, I think this was actually fascinating, and maybe this is unintuitive. It does, I don't know that this is immediately obvious until you start to work through it. But the question is, how important is the frequency of tax loss harvesting? You can harvest daily, or you can harvest weekly or monthly, uh, quarterly. Our process is monthly, so we tend to rebalance or at least evaluate whether rebalances make sense on a monthly basis. But that was driven by research. It, didn't, it wasn't like, let's rebalance monthly and then see what the research says. We did the research and came to the conclusion to rebalance monthly. But in the research side, if you think about tax loss harvesting, and I hadn't seen any work done on this, one question that comes up is, when should you harvest? What's the threshold? for harvesting a loss? Is it when a stock is down a basis point or do you need something more meaningful than that? And essentially, like pretty much everything else in finance, there's a trade-off. And the trade-off comes, at least one of the trade-offs comes from the wash sale rules. So when you sell a stock, you can't buy it back for 30 days. And under the presumption that you're selling a stock that you would want to own otherwise for the purpose of harvesting a loss, because if you're going to sell it anyway, tax loss harvesting isn't the consideration. So this is a stock you would have wanted to own otherwise, but it has a loss and you'd like to harvest it. The trade-off is you're not owning a stock you want to own, right? That you're taking active weight or tracking your relative to the position you want to have. So the question is like, what is the benefit of harvesting a loss versus taking this active weight? So you can look at different thresholds. You can ask, what if I harvest a loss when it's down 1%? or 5% or 20%. And what is the typical yield you get? If you set the threshold at 20%, a lot of stocks may never hit that. So you, the opportunity set has been diminished, right? So you can look at the benefit on one axis and the cost is the active active weight that you're taking relative to the desired position on the other axis. And, you, and then you can use that to try to figure out the utility function for when you'd like to harvest a loss. So that was act one. Let's just describe these frontiers. And then the second question, act two, was how does that depend on harvest frequency? Let's say I do this monthly or I do this daily. And I think what people would generally say is if you harvest losses daily, you can achieve a higher tax loss harvesting yield. True. If I set my threshold at 10% and I say, I will harvest losses when a stock is down more than 10%, if I look every day, I will harvest more losses than if I look once a month. But you will have a higher tracking error. So it's not an apples to apples comparison. It's not fair to just say, I got a harvesting yield that's 20% higher. If you got an active weight, that's also 20% higher. I could have achieved that by changing my threshold. So I think what's important is how different are the frontiers? Do you actually move the frontier by changing the frequency with which you look at this? And the answer to that is actually pretty much no. You move it a little bit, but it's so small in terms of the improvement that you get by going from monthly to daily, the frontiers are basically on top of each other. And what that tells me is it's really not that helpful. It doesn't hurt things, but it's, it's, it's not necessarily that helpful to harvest daily. You just have to figure out how much active weight are you comfortable with. And then that tells you a threshold that's appropriate. And, and that threshold depends on whether you're looking at this on a daily basis or on a monthly basis. That's something, and when it comes to harvesting losses, and I think that's an important part of tax efficiency, these portfolios, I think those are the two questions. So are you looking at this at ETFs or are you looking at individual stocks? And then how often are you looking and how do you calibrate? How are you forming portfolios in the first place? Is it, you've got a set of portfolio characteristics that you're 
targeting and you're finding the mean variance optimal portfolio subject to those constraints? Are you doing more of a a ranking, multiple ranking kind of, and then holding them in equal weight or inverse ball or what is, because I feel like that would also inform how effective tax loss harvesting is at different frequencies. And on this question, you mean specifically the equity portfolios? Yeah, the equity portfolio, yeah. Yeah, our portfolio construction on the equity side is really designed to try to maximize or simultaneously maximize diversification and exposure to the desired characteristics while reducing trading because we don't want to just overtrade, overtrade these portfolios. So essentially, we rank stocks based off of the factors that have been selected. And that depends on which factors you selected. You could have a value ranking or a ranking across multiple factors. So we rank stocks based off of the factors. We have a notion of a benchmark. And the benchmark, the basic benchmark is cap weighted. But if, if you want a size tilt, essentially, we have a modified benchmark which is a weighted average of cap weights and equal weights to reduce the exposure to large cap and shift that across the board. So we have a notion of a benchmark. And then, and then when you're implementing the portfolio, at least at, when you're first implementing the portfolio, you are getting positive active weight relative to that benchmark. And that's where the dollars start. And for an active portfolio, you're likely to hold 150 to 250 names if, if you do this. And then that gets you the portfolio on day one. Now time passes and the rankings have changed and there are harvesting opportunities. You might have to sell, not for those reasons, but to rebalance the weight of equity relative to the bond. There are any number of reasons why maybe there's a withdrawal or a contribution. But essentially, we have, we have the scores and we have the existing portfolio that we have going into the next rebalance. And either we have to raise capital or we have to allocate capital or we're just rebalancing. And we would liquidate those stocks that no longer score well, but the threshold is pretty liberal because we don't want to liquidate a stock just because it's not in the top decile. The turnover would be, would be enormous if we did that. But if it's starting to actually look like a stock that has negative alpha in the portfolio, it would get liquidated um, if there's a harvesting opportunity beyond a specified threshold, a stock would get liquidated. If it's too overweight because its returns have been really strong and we have too much exposure to a stock, then it might not get liquidated. It would be sold down. And then after you do all those transactions, that gives you capital to invest. And if you are underweight stocks relative to the overall portfolio, then that capital would get reinvested in stocks and it would seek out to buy the best stocks that, you know, that you would want to own. If you're not underweight stocks, if you're underweight bonds, then the capital would go to, to bond holdings. So, so can we go back and can we go up a level then on portfolio construction? So you mentioned that you have a, a bunch of viable models that some include risk parity with leverage and some don't. So some of the characteristics that you can choose, some of the levers you can pull is what type of factor tilts you want in your equity portfolio. That's just a small portion, right? At the end of the day, asset allocation ends up being more powerful. So how do you think about that, that the the allocation across equities, bonds, commodities, gold, alternatives? Yeah, so our our fundamental philosophy is diversification across the risk vector, not dollar diversification, but risk diversification across asset classes. And our portfolios are primarily equity and bond portfolios. 
we select portfolio weights to try to bring things closer to balance, rebalanced risk, certainly a lot closer to balanced risk than a 60-40 would be, which is extremely unbalanced. And we have different portfolios at different risk targets, if you will, or risk levels. And essentially, we split it into two categories where we have one type of portfolio that includes leverage for those who are comfortable with that. And that would be for someone who is an aggressive, has an aggressive growth posture. And then we have the remaining portfolios that are unlevered portfolios that have a weight to equities, which are implemented as we just described, and then have a weight to bonds. Now, those portfolios, let's talk about the unlevered portfolios for a second. Those portfolios are picking the bond maturity and the bond weight to try to bring things into balance. I think when I look at like the typical model portfolio, the bonds tend to be similar across the different risk risk profiles. It's just like it's 95% equity, 5% the same bond portfolio, or 20% equity and 80% the same bond portfolio. But what if leverage is the constraint, if, we, if in this case, we're always 100% invested, essentially, we use the duration of bonds as an additional degree of freedom to try to help keep these things diversified. So if you're a very conservative investor, you might have 20% equity and 80% five-year bonds. If you're a more aggressive investor, it might be 60% equity and 40% 30-year bonds because extending the duration is a way of bringing the portfolio, maintaining balance. Maintaining balance. Yeah. And you do that because you're constrained on leverage. Right. We believe the five-year bond has a higher sharp ratio than the 30-year bond, but you're not willing to lever the five-year bond. So that constraint is binding, and we try to build the portfolio that achieves the diversification objective and the return objective under, under that constraint. But then if you free us of that constraint and allow, allow for leverage, then we have a balanced portfolio that is using a slightly shorter duration bond. So um, our levered portfolio is, and we call it a protected levered portfolio because it does include some options for protection, but it's basically 75% equity. Again, that can be US equity or it can be a global equity portfolio. And then it is 125% what we call hedged enhanced treasury. So it's a synthetic corporate bond alternative. So it's using bond futures coupled with modest short volatility overlay such that the combine the combination of those two is intended to serve as an investment grade substitute but with what we expect to have better expected returns and a better drawdown profile but it's 75 percent equity 125 percent exposure to that with a, a relatively deep out of the money put option to protect against potentially catastrophic bond moves. So th um, that's got to be, there's got to be a minimum account size for something like that, given that it's a futures contract, no? Yes, there is. Basically, one bond for futures contract, notional value of around 120 plus or minus, depending on what's going on in yields, about $120,000. But then on the short volatility overlay, essentially we need about a million dollars of bond exposure to be able to implement one contract because it's not very aggressive. It's intended to be not a high yield or a super high yield substitute, but an investment grade. And that, and that bond exposure is what duration? So it's 10 year treasury. So that's going to be closer to giving current yield curves, the six and a half year maturity bond, which is probably like a five and a half duration. So I think, I think we spoke about this about a year ago, the role that when we think about risk parity 
value coming from AQR. It includes inflation protection assets. It could be through tips. It could be through commodities, gold. And then there's, we, I think we did talk about managed futures as an option. There's, I can't remember what the limitations were of not including those in models. Is it more of a kind of optimizing for behavior for the typical retail investor? Or is it more of a regulatory restriction? It's not regulatory. So everything we do is in an SMA and it's all integrated, right? So we build like these individual portfolios that include in the same account, the equities, the bonds, the futures, the options. So you start to get into, as you said, what's the size you need given futures contracts. And if you want to have diversified commodity exposure, that starts to get a little bit, a little bit challenging. On the inflation side, fortunately, there isn't like a, a treasury and if a treasury inflation protected futures Future. contract, mm-hmm. right? If you want to provide exposure to that, you're financing that, but you're financing that at retail financing rates. And some broker dealers are better than others, but that's expensive. You get very kind of capital efficient financing rates and futures contracts just by their very nature. So there are some challenges there. And then, but And this is interesting. This is something we're looking at. And we've been looking at it for a while. And we're going to continue looking at it on the tips versus treasuries, because I just talked about the complexity within the levered portfolio because because of the need for for leverage. But then you can say, what about the unlevered portfolio? You could have you could buy tips instead of treasuries or mix them. And it's something that we're looking at. I have a couple of biases that pull me in opposite directions. So on the one hand, if you care about real returns and people should care about real returns. Tips are the asset, at least on the bond side, that that are providing real return protection, if you will. But I think everybody should care essentially about real returns. And I think there's reason to believe that there's an inflation risk premium and that would be embedded in the differential returns between tips and treasuries. And I think that's something that you see if you look, if you compare, let's say over the last 10 or 15 years, the returns of duration match tips to duration match treasuries, which is up until about a year and a half or two years ago, the tips were underperforming by a reasonable margin, which I think you would expect. And then they just had a phenomenal, by no surprise, a phenomenal one or two year period. And interestingly, I think right now it depends on your starting point in this analysis. If you look at it, back to when the history of the TIPS ETF starts, they're pretty much neck and neck with each other. The TIPS have caught up. So I guess the question is, do you believe what we just saw over the last year and a half? Is that underrepresented or overrepresented relative to the 15 historical years on a forward-looking basis? That's one question in terms of which do you think has the higher or lower expected return? I think my underlying assumption is there should be an inflation risk premium And at least on the expected return side, over a long enough period, treasuries should outperform tips by a little bit. That doesn't mean it's not worthwhile to allocate tips. There is some value, obviously, in having the protection against inflation. So that's actually like an active area of research where we're trying to fine tune our view a bit on this trade-off between the differences in expected return and, and the benefits that you might get by hedging some of the inflation through through that security. Yeah. Gold, commodities, trend? Yeah, so gold, commodities, trends. Probably a little bit, all of these things are on the stack of, on the stack of things we're going to look at. So it all comes down to shot selection and what comes first. On tr- one thing we're looking at, it's there are a couple of ways to do it, right? We could allocate to a, a fund because 
that that can be done at smaller size, or we could try to do it within the SMA, but that's really hard. I think if you're trying to have diversified trend with, I don't know, a dozen, two dozen, three dozen or more contracts, you need a pretty large account size to make that happen. Yeah. You need 20, 25 million to make it work with especially alongside all of the other assets you want to hold. Yeah. And especially if that's going to be a smaller allocation, when you're not talking about a pure trend fund, you're talking about trend allocation within an SMA. So the allocation should be smaller. So I think that's challenging. One thing we're looking at is incorporating essentially trend alongside the bond exposure itself. So taking the bond exposure and making it tactical, but that's a single asset trend, at least trying to be tactical within that. And then the other stuff, I think we're, I think that's just something we're going to look at and see what's the, what approach might we take if we take an approach at all. I think our intent was to really capture the foundation of the portfolio. And I think by including lifestyle protection through LDI, which is pretty (laughs) unique and coupling that with the other elements of the portfolio, I think we've really nailed the foundational elements and then we'll see what we might be able to add around that. And one thing I didn't mention actually is when we talk about protecting, I don't know, 25, 50% of the cash flow goal, that's an initial protection level. So we actually have a glide path that takes place over time where as the cash flows are getting nearer, the goal, the objective of the portfolio is to increase the protection level. And if you see gains in the growth part of the portfolio, the goal is to also increase the protection level. So it's not that you choose to protect 25% of your cash flows and it just remains at 25% over the life of the portfolio, it's going to look for kind of tactical opportunities to monetize some of the gains seen in the growth portfolio to increase that protection over time. But that's intended to be a ratchet. You're you know, locking because- it in over time as you get lucky. And exactly. Closer to retirement, yeah. Yeah, and we see that as a pretty nice enhancement to a target date fund. If you think about a target date fund, they have these glide paths and it's easy to be critical, but I don't know if I had to create a target date fund that without additional information and breaking the commingled vehicle, it's not obvious you could do better. They have to create one fund that works for everybody. And what do well, they know? Well, I, have, I have a lot to say about you that. Can do, right? yeah, you can do better. I'm trying to you be can, a little generous. Once you but, get rid of that leverage restriction, you can do a lot better for you can a one-shot goal. And you, you can, can do a seven, lot You give me seven funds and, I, and access to leverage. Which, Yes, we can certainly improve on those target date funds easily. But I agree that like with the way you're doing it is much more targeted and important. So, Yeah, and the thing I would say is like they just don't know how much wealth somebody has and what their cash flow goals are, yeah, right? Exactly. So yeah. if, I, if someone is extremely wealthy and they're somewhat frugal, it doesn't, why are they de-risking as they're nearing retirement? They don't need to de-risk. I mean, it, everything really depends on the person's individual circumstance. If, if, if the portfolio does really well, maybe when they started, the cash flow goals were aggressive, but for whatever reason, equities rallied, bonds rallied, whatever happened, it could be that those cash flow goals are no, no longer aggressive and the portfolio could be more growth tilted. But the target but date- Ronnie, if, if you do that. twist my arm to replace the Vanguard BlackRock glide path, I think we can do a good job. Yeah, you and me, well, those, you and me, Ronnie. Are, Look, you've done it. Honestly, the, uh, the foundation that you've created is amazing. I think it's a massive step forward for private wealth. I think anybody listening here needs to actually explore your website. Just wrapping is, up, I have another question. Oh, are REITs a good investment? It seemed like you might have a thought on that. I wanted to make sure we covered that because I was curious, and I don't want to not. I want to don't want to have the answer later. I want it now. 
Okay, I do have a thought on that. So it's so interesting to me because I think when people look at REITs, they always kind of state two facts and then draw a conclusion on those facts. And fact one is they've had strong, strong realized returns in line with equities. And then fact two is that their correlation to equities is medium, which says diversification, right? You can, it's not a super highly correlated asset to equities and it's had good returns and they conclude from that that it's diversifying. But I think that's the wrong conclusion. I think there are other facts to consider and correlation doesn't tell you everything. The appropriate approach one should take is more of a regression. What is its exposure? What is its beta to equities? What is its beta maybe to other to other assets or factors? And what is its alpha and what is its tracking error? Those are if you're actually making an allocation decision that's what you want to consider. And if you run the regression, and it, the, the coefficient depends on time period and whatnot, but if you run the regression, what you tend to find is that REITs have a beta to equities that's greater than 1, 1.2, 1.3, 1 1.4, 1 depending on the period, and a beta to treasuries of 0.2 or 0.3. So REITs are exposed to two risk premium. That's great. Both of those are compensated risk premium. But if REITs are only giving you the same return as equity, while having 130% exposure to equity and 10, 20, 30% exposure to bonds, which also had positive risk premium returns over that period, they're coming up short by several percent a year. And their negative alpha and the tracking error is actually pretty high. And that's why you have a correlation that's modest, right? Because it has a lot of tracking error. So you get exposure to equities, you get exposure to bonds. You don't need REITs to get exposure to equities and bonds. You can get that by buying equities and bonds. So what REITs give you is equity exposure and bond exposure that you can get elsewhere, a lot of tracking error and negative alpha. And that just doesn't sound <laughs> isn't so Isn't that compelling. a lot? Isn't that credit as well? That's always been a thing. Like credit is the same thing. Credit is the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at credit, it's equity, bonds, and short volatility. And that's the idea behind the synthetic corporate bond is that if it's a Merton model, right? Merton says, corporate bond is a government bond plus a short put off, long bond, long equity, short ball. And once you do a full accounting of those exposures, corporate bonds also have negative alpha, which is not so appealing. Everybody loves that income though. Give me the income. Right. It's kind of surprising that. actually that REITs are only have a beta 0 0.2, 0 0.3 to rates given the 75% loan to value that typically finances them. I would have expected a higher beta to rates, but maybe anyway, I just get that's probably just attributable to the equity beta. And also, in terms of everybody loves the yield, I guess I have to. Now I'm stuck, Ronnie, with your research the shareholder yield versus dividend yield, right? I think you wrote about that as well. So just give us a, an overview on that. Yeah, that was more about. It's interesting how people have a strong view about, about buybacks. And I guess part of that has become political, and I'm not going to navigate into the political waters of the whole thing. But you basically have two ways of returning cash to investors, right? You can, a company can issue a dividend, a company can buy back their own shares. And um, what I wanted to explore in the piece was the impact of the buyback tax. I first wrote it when the 1% buyback tax was proposed. And then, of course, it, it passed into law. And recently, there was a proposal to increase that to 4%. And what I wanted to see is like, how impact was that impactful? Should companies stop issuing buybacks because of the tax and move more to dividends? And it just turns out that, that the overall impact of that is pretty modest. It's hard to imagine, unless there's something optical about having paid the tax, it's hard to imagine 
a company shifting from buybacks to dividends because of that tax, because dividends are still less tax efficient. The two things that are interesting to me is that I, unless I'm misunderstanding how the buyback tax is applied, it does introduce taxation within retirement accounts because you're paying, the company's paying tax on, on, on shares that are being bought back. So it does change things yeah. for investors. It's that's implicit tax. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that's interesting. And then the other thing is, I think in part, what makes dividends less tax efficient is one, you've lost the optionality on when you realize the tax, right? With a buyback, mm-hmm. you only realize the tax if you've actually chosen to s- sell your shares, except for the fact that there's now this buyback tax. With dividends, you're realizing taxes if a company chooses to, to issue a dividend. But I think what's what makes dividends in particular less tax efficient beyond that is that you could end up having a tax liability even if you've lost money on the trade, right? So if you buy a stock for 100 bucks, it declines to 90 and it's issuing dividends, your total return might be down 8%, but you owe taxes on the dividend. And if you simulate that over time, what that means is that the effective tax rate of dividends is higher than the tax rate of dividends because sometimes you're paying taxes on losses for all intents and purposes. And that doesn't exist with buybacks because with buybacks, absent this buyback tax from the, from the perspective of the taxes paid directly by the investor, that only occurs if there's actually a capital gain. I can't so, resist weighing in on this because I, kind of, I feel what's missed in the whole Medigliani-Miller argument is you know, that dividends and buybacks are equivalent from a cap structure standpoint is that dividends are typically on average withdrawn from the market and then used for spending purposes or whatever. They're considered income by investors, whereas buybacks are typically not. So there's a, you know, that money is reinvested in the company. And there's a, there's not, in the absence of liquidity constraints, then yeah, there would be no difference. But because when you add buying pressure to a stock, there's, there is not infinite liquidity. You're also pro- at the margin, you're, you're providing a boost to the price of that stock over time. So at the margin, buybacks are a bolster the level of the stock market over time in the president in the presence of liquidity constraints in the way that dividends do not. I am curious about temporary versus permanent price impact on that. Yes, if you buy back shares, there's certainly there's price impact on any purchase, right? So origin literature is pretty clear that there is a strong permanent price impact on the buyback. Um, yeah, on buybacks. It's I don't it I is mean, strong and permanent and persistent above what would be the accumulation of equity by the share underlying shares. Yeah, yeah, in the absence yeah. of buybacks. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> no, but given that, so does that mean so if you assume that to be if you accept that as given, that you know, there's a permanent price impact, then I guess what follows then is valuation ratios are maybe higher than they would be otherwise. And expected uh, returns will be lower. And expected returns are lower than they would be otherwise. Yeah. And and then and for that reason, then you're opposed to them or it's just, this is just the- It advantages those who already had equity over those who will accumulate equity in the future. Because- yeah, yeah. Did you, Roddy, did you do a break even on where you thought the tax should be in order to make it equivalent? How I, high does it have to be? 
I didn't do that. Yes, I could have, but I, I don't know that I'm necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily. No, no, I don't want you to share some... it with the government. Yeah. <laughs> I promise I won't share it. Yeah. 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 I think I, it was less, it was interesting to me about how impactful is the tax. And I don't think it's super impactful. I do think there's something more interesting about the fact that it does introduce implicit taxation and not in tax exempt accounts, which I don't know if people are thinking about. Yeah, that, that and you, when you were accounting for it, you were accounting for the deferred capital gain, obviously, that the client or the individual owner would pay at some point on liquidation. So you got all those factors in there. And yeah, it's interesting. My dog is objecting to the fact that this has gone over an hour, 30 minutes. There's about okay. 15 other threads that I wanted to pull, Ronnie, as you can imagine, but we managed to cover a huge amount of ground. So yeah, thanks for having me on. This was fun. I'll be back for sure. Yeah. No, it was a lot of fun. So thank you so much. I'm so glad we finally managed to get you on the show. I think it was a super productive conversation. And uh, we still have lots to talk about next time, which is great. It's, so, and, Ronnie, it's, where, it's where Endeavor. And yeah, where can everyone get to you? Oh, yeah. So it's Endeavor, but it's spelled N-D-V-R. We're a devoweled firm. But NDVR.com. And I'm also on Twitter. So... Not nearly often enough, I might add. We need need more Ronnie Israelov cowbell, in my opinion. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely do, because I'm tired of fighting with these people on the 4% rule. I hear you. I hear (laughs) you. I need some help, Ronnie. Anyway, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great weekend. All right. Have a great weekend. Chat later. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for Resolve Dash Masterclass.